Southeast Asian workers caught in Israel, transboundary haze, and weapons trafficking. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Lauren Mai, and today is October 19th, 2023. On today's show... The MRC has been engaging China. I think that's a good thing. Yet at the same time, the greater involvement of China within the MRC. I've been perceiving that they've been a bit more constrained in their language and perhaps a little bit more limited in the way that they can talk about the Mekong as they go through these new exercises with China. That was Brian Eiler, who chatted with Greg Poling to discuss the latest developments in the Mekong. I'm very excited for that interview, and we're so glad you get to join in as well. First, though, the headlines. For our regular listeners, Jaffa is off this week, so we're switching it up and I'm hosting today. To help me read the headlines, we have Angelica Ortega in the studio. Angelica is a manager for the Philippines, Singapore, and Customs and Trade Facilitation at the U.S. ASEAN Business Council. Welcome, Angelica. Hi, Lauren. It's so good to see you again. It's so wonderful to have you here. How's your October going? Well, it's colder than I'm used to, of course, since I'm from Manila. Real. You'd think I'd be used to the cold after four years of school in Boston, but no. It's been a crazy week for the world. Yeah, there's a lot going on. Let's get into our first story. The entire world has been watching the conflict in Israel and Palestine, and Southeast Asia is no exception. While the actual conflict is taking place across the world, the ramifications stretch far beyond. Israel hosts thousands of Southeast Asian migrant workers, and at least 20,000 are Thai nationals, while another 30,000 are Filipino. At least 21 Thai workers and two Filipinos have been killed in the crossfire. Several more Thai workers have been abducted. Most ASEAN nations released statements calling for an end to the violence. Indonesia and Malaysia, while echoing these sentiments, also condemned Israel as an occupying force. Protests took place in Kuala Lumpur and Jakarta in support of Palestine. Jaffet wrote a recent piece on these developments on our latest on Southeast Asia blog. So if you're interested in more details regarding ASEAN responses to the conflict, please give it a read. Back to Thailand. On October 3rd, a teenager killed three and injured five others in a deadly mall shooting. The 14-year-old boy used a modified pistol originally intended to shoot blanks. Following the shooting, Thai police seized over 2,000 illegal firearms, tens of thousands of bullets, and arrested over 1,500 persons involved with illegal arms. This crackdown, ordered by Prime Minister Setha Thavisin, coincides with efforts made by the government to pay extra attention to weapon sellers online. Weapons trafficking issues run deep in Southeast Asia. Indeed. In fact, two groups based in Myanmar filed a complaint with Indonesia's Human Rights Commission last week, alleging that three state-owned companies sold supplies to Myanmar's military. While the complaint didn't list the exact materials purchased, documents from one of the Indonesian SOEs described the Myanmar Air Force and Myanmar Navy as some of its valued clients. According to the advocacy group Justice for Myanmar, the alleged sales went through a Myanmar company called True North, which is owned by the son of the military government's planning and finance minister. This tracks with what experts say is a common workaround regarding defense sanctions, conducting transactions through third-party intermediaries based in jurisdictions such as Singapore. A day after the complaint was filed, state-owned defense holding company Defend ID owner of three SOEs in question, denied exporting defense equipment to Myanmar. Regardless, observers say the allegations will hurt Indonesia's reputation as a peace broker and defender of Myanmar's Rohingya Muslims. Speaking of allegations against Indonesia, last week the Malaysian government accused the Indonesian government of affecting the air quality in Sarawak and along the west coast of peninsular Malaysia. 
According to a statement by Malaysia's Environment Minister, fires started in Indonesia, mostly to clear land for plantations, have brought haze into the country, sparking public health concerns and potentially affecting tourism operations. And this isn't the first time. Transboundary smog, allegedly originating from Indonesia, has previously blanketed the region, most recently in 2015 and 2019. Malaysian government officials have urged their Indonesian counterparts to take action on the matter. They have also called for joint action by ASEAN through legislation or agreement. Of course, Indonesian officials denied these allegations. Yep, they argue that forest fires in some parts of the country had declined, that they did not detect any smoke drifting over its borders, and that they are working to put out forest fires. These efforts are not based upon Malaysia's requests, stressed Siti Murbaya, Indonesia's environment minister. Still, the rest of Southeast Asia is clearly concerned. Southeast Asian agriculture and forestry ministers released a statement calling for collective action to minimize and eliminate crop burning in the region. And those are the headlines. Thanks, Angelica, for stopping by. Up next, Greg's interview with Brian Eiler. So stay tuned. Welcome back to another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. My name is Gregory Poling with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm flying solo today as my usual co-host, Alina Noor of the Carnegie Endowment, is traveling in China and is on the wrong side of the Great Firewall this week, so won't be able to join. But I am joined by a fantastic guest, Brian Eiler. Brian is my counterpart over at the Stimson Center, where he directs the Southeast Asia program. And Brian does the one thing that I promised when I was brought over to run the Southeast Asia program here at CSIS I would not touch, which is the Mekong. And I don't work on the Mekong because Brian already does it so well, it would be the height of foolishness for me to even try. The reason we're bringing Brian on, other than just a pulse check on the health of the Mekong River this year, is that Brian and his deputy, Courtney Weatherby, also a CSIS alum, just wrapped up a report on the outcome of their seventh Mekong-U.S. partnership, Track 1.5 Policy Dialogue on Transboundary Water Governance, which was held from July 17th to 18th in Chiang Rai, Thailand. report just came out at the end of September. So, Brian, first, could you tell us a little bit about this workshop series that you've been running for the last, what, two years? Sure. Happy to be here, Greg. Big fan of the podcast and big fan of our informal handshake where Stimson covers the Mekong and, and you guys keep watching and we just absorb all the great stuff that comes out of CSIS Southeast Asia. This project is out of the State Department's Mekong U.S. partnership and it's been going on for three years. It started during the pandemic where we convened virtually first a track point five policy dialogue on a variety of themes. And that brought together 60 to 70 individuals working in these themes, their government officials, their academics, their NGO leaders or community leaders under a common tent to discuss the issues, to articulate challenges that are emerging across these various themes, and then engage in an exercise to develop policy recommendations for the U.S. government, donor partners, and the governments in the Mekong themselves. The themes have been spot on for what's needed in the Mekong. We started with energy and infrastructure. We looked at connectivity issues as a second theme. Last summer, we were able to start these in person in Cambodia, health and education, and then followed that with nature-based solutions, cyber-enabled crime and trafficking in May, and then this most recent water governance workshop in, in July in Chiang Rai. And you're going to have one more of these before the series wraps up. Indeed. Yeah, we're going to have an eighth in Vietnam. Fingers crossed. It's hard to get 
conferences approved in Vietnam these days. Let's not get into that. Maybe we will. That's going to be in March or April on food security. Okay. Before we dive into the recommendations and the specific topics in the workshop, let's let's pull back a little bit and talk Mekong overall. Sure. Because I think it does get lost for a lot of average readers and listeners in the headlines of all the various fires going on around the world. Right. Basically, when people get a once-in-a-year checkup on the Tonle Sap drying up. But otherwise, it's hard to track the Mekong day in and day out. So compared to recent years, how has the river been doing this year, water levels and health and whatnot? This year has been okay. We think that without the impacts of dams, and our team monitors the impacts of dams via the Mekong Dam Monitor, but without the impacts of dams, river flows for this wet season probably would have been within a normal range. But the dam restrictions, they're restricting flow that's bringing down the river levels and it makes it fall outside of normal range. But there's been a a string of really dry wet seasons from 2019 to 2021 where the river was extremely low and this year is not like that. Okay. And when you say dams, do we just mean Chinese dams upstream? China's got the two largest dams in the system and they're two of the largest dams in the world. They hold combined almost as much water as the Chesapeake Bay. So you can imagine like that amount of water coming out of a river system during a wet season or being put back in during a dry season can have a big effect on downstream outcomes, even thousands of miles away. But Laos now has about 100 dams that are operational. Those together hold almost as much as what China's two big dams do. Thailand's got its own dams. Vietnam is also an upstream country with dams on the border with Laos and the Central Highlands. And Cambodia's got one big dam as well. So all these dams come together to deliver their impacts on the system. I want to follow up on the substance there, but since you mentioned the dam monitor, tell listeners a little bit about the Mekong Dam Monitor for those not familiar. Well, the Mekong Dam Monitor is kind of a pathfinding online platform that for the first time ever provides transparency over dam operations of the largest dams throughout the Mekong system. There's a lot of focus on China's dams because China's are the largest and China's never provided information to the downstream about the operations of those dams. And there was long speculation that those dams were driving drought or causing sudden flash flooding. But we're able to actually show what they're doing and determine whether they are causing flooding or, or exacerbating drought. It's an online platform. We use satellites and existing data via the Mekong River Commission to tell the story of what's happening to the river. And it's put out there in seven different languages, including all the languages of the Mekong. And your team's been operating the monitor for a few years now. How has the process of socializing this project gone down in the region? Are are downstream countries getting more comfortable with the transparency you're providing? We now have use cases of our data among all the governments of the lower Mekong. So that would be Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, Vietnam. We believe China uses the data because they like to The propaganda machine likes to smear us and and show us our data in their smear campaign. So that's happening. But beyond the use cases, and that's, you know, putting our data to use for analysis and research, some which is published, some which is presented at conferences, some which is put forward in planning. We're seeing the Mekong River Commission put it to good use and take it to their negotiations with China upstream. And that's really paying off in, in spades for them. Well, I think our AMTI team here at CSS can sympathize with the idea of a Publicly available transparency (laughs) after it's being used in interesting ways by the Chinese state 
mouthpieces. Well, and we, we learned so much from AMTI and your work, Greg, with, um, you know, how to effectively communicate and how to disseminate transparency and use visualizations to tell stories. I appreciate it. This is why we miss Alina being on the pod, because this is too friendly. It's too, you know, self-congratulatory. <laughs> Usually Alina's here to disagree and tell me where I'm wrong. But you know, next time, Alina. Next time. Next time. So I assume in this latest workshop you ran on transboundary water governance, issue of damming, coordinating releases and, and whatnot must have been a major focus. Anything you can tell us about the discussions and recommendations on that front? Well, there are a number of recommendations within this report. And I have to start by saying these reports, they've already delivered a lot of impact. We haven't seen anything come out of this particular report yet. It's just hot off the press. But our past reports, which are chock full of policy recommendations, you know, we see some of these recommendations end up in White House fact sheets, like the U.S. ASEAN Special Leaders Summit last year. There are a number of, of programs that really matched what was articulated from various conferences. This Transboundary Water Governance Conference focused on a number of issues like coordinated dam management throughout the basin or just within tributary systems. But we also looked at fisheries impacts. We talked about how communities can conserve local fisheries, how governments can better conduct stock assessments for fisheries, how fish ladders can or cannot work within the Mekong. Actually, that was a big focus of our discussion. Storage was another one. You know, in the, in the region, there's a lot of debate these days about increased water storage needs and you can imagine the construction companies are you know chomping at the bit to build more stuff and build more reservoirs particularly as there's a perception of a new normal of climate change bringing the need for more water yet countering that gray infrastructure argument is one of nature-based solutions where which we also explored at the conference where your existing natural infrastructure, wetlands and floodplains can do that storage for you. We also discussed extreme weather events, you know, how the region can operate dams and also be better prepared to mitigate against extreme weather events, which are only increasing in the region. Fish ladders. I was not familiar with the debate around fish ladders on the, on the dam. I mean, until I remember going to your book launch event in 2019, you published yep, the, the yep. last days of Mighty Mekong. That's the first time I realized that this was an active and I'm pretty impactful debate given that mm -hmm. the Mekong accounts for what, 15% of 20% 20. 20 of global freshwater fish catch. Correct. And so for listeners who, like me, probably have not spent a lot of time learning about fish ladders, this is basically to help fish get upstream to spawn right. that would otherwise be blocked by dams. Right. And countries... Lao and China in particular, I guess, put these in because it lets them say that the dam is not disrupting the natural life cycle of fish, and scientists don't necessarily agree with that assessment? Yeah, you basically got it. China has never built a fish ladder on any of its dams in the Mekong, and these are high head dams. That means they have really tall walls, and there's no way to get fish beyond those dams with a, a ladder. Fish catapult or something, maybe. <laughs> well, you could have a fish elevator. <laughs> in some systems, they put the, the fish in trucks and truck them upstream. So that seems efficient. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. But in the Mekong, the concern is that you have about a thousand species of fish, give or take. Most of them are migratory to some degree, and they need to get upstream into the tributaries to spawn. Now, in rivers which have 
achieve a modicum of success with fish ladders, like the Columbia River, that success is achieved with salmon, like with one species, again, to a very modest degree. Here in the Mekong, again, there are a thousand species. And it's a tropical river, meaning that there's a huge abundance of fish species as well. The fish population is quite large. And there's just no way to move fish of the various sizes and shapes and volumes over dams that are straddling a tributary or a mainstream, despite the best efforts. And there has been no research produced by, say, the Saibori Dam operator in Laos. It's a Thai dam operator that effectively demonstrates the the success rate of, of that fish ladder. Yet, dams are still going up, and now more and more dam constructors are saying, let's put a fish ladder in, even though there's really no evidence that they're useful. So it is a, it's, it's a form of greenwashing. It can be a big waste of money. Like in the Saibori Dam, it was about 10% of the budget. How do Lao participants in your workshop respond to that discussion? Well, it's Chatham House Rural Conference. How do all participants but in theory... But outside of the conference, <laughs> <laughs> there's kind of a hubris in Lao that fish ladders work. And we've heard that the Lao government is saying since the Saibori Dam, which is the first large dam on the mainstream of the Mekong and the downstream countries, since that fish ladder is working, then it's going to work on other dams. But like I said, there's no publicly produced or published research showing that they are working. There's just this internal rumor going around that's giving false confidence to dam developers. The last major point that I think is in the ether and that was a focus of your dialogue is the issue of sand mining. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. And the, the impacts. Can you tell us a little bit? about the scale of sand mining on the Mekong? Well, sand mining is a big problem, and it's it's kind of understudied, definitely under-monitored, and we'd love to build sand mining, real-time sand mining research into the dam monitor. First, send, send checks to Mekong Dam Monitor. <laughs> exactly. Send, uh, thanks, thanks, Greg. <laughs> it can be done, and the methods are known and published, but it involves satellite imagery, which is not cheap. So... And uh, Greg, we know the budgetary issues with satellite imagery. Also send checks to amti.csis.org. <laughs> I mean, the problem with stand is first outlining the problem. There are numerous issues. The Mekong Delta, which is a patch of land roughly the size of West Virginia or the country of Denmark, came to be through flood processes that cast sand and sediment across the land of the delta pushing it out into the ocean so it makes the land strong it creates new land now with sea level rise and the ocean kind of whacking the delta and taking more and more of it into the ocean more sand is actually needed to make it more resilient yet sand is coming out upstream through sand mining and also being blocked behind dams upstream another big disadvantage or negative effect of sand mining is that typically when floods cast water across the land, they deposit nutrients that are in the sand. And that's a natural fertilizer, a very rich fertilizer for agricultural production in, say, the Mekong Delta, which is one of the world's largest rice baskets, if you will, or agricultural production areas. And the same goes for Cambodia. So without that sand and sediment, the delta gets weaker, sea level rise is more impactful in a negative way, and agriculture suffers. Sand is coming out of the Mekong. You can see it if you're in Phnom Penh. You can see it if you're in the Mekong Delta. These dredgers just bringing sand out at a really uncoordinated and a, and a un, huge unknown rate of extraction to build buildings in Phnom Penh and Ho Chi Minh City and industrializing areas. And recently a study came out 
showing that it's likely within 10 years, the rate of replacement will not be able to keep up with the amount of sand that's being extracted. So the, the Mekong could run out of all of its sand in, in about 10 years. There is an organization that, in theory, coordinates, at least for the lower Mekong states, on all these issues, right? The Mekong River Commission. And one of the recommendations in your report is that the 1995 Mekong River Agreement that established the MRC needs to be modernized in, in mm -hmm. some way. Where are the failure points right now in, in the MRC, and how do you fix it? Well, sand mining is one. The MRC really doesn't address sand mining, and it has a huge environmental impact and, and economic impact on the region. And, in 1995, sand mining wasn't an issue, so therefore it wasn't necessarily added as an extractive industry that needed to be governed or sustainable uses need to be promoted. I mean, that's kind of an easy problem to fix. You can set quotas, right? You know what the rate of replacement is because more sand and sediment comes down the river every year, and quotas can be set and governance mechanisms can be set to have a sustainable use of that resource. And that's something the Mekong River Commission could govern. The MRC for all its faults, it does a lot of good for the region. We find some of the best research on water flows and water-related data is housed at the Mekong River Commission. And many of the analysis and studies that the MRC produces, like in 2018, they produced this study that said, hey, if all the dams are built, we're looking at a really doomsday scenario for agriculture and fisheries within in the Mekong. Good stuff. It's just translating that that research to action where there's been a gap. And more recently, MRC has been engaging China. I think that's a good thing. Yet at the same time, the greater involvement of China within the MRC, I've been perceiving that they've been a bit more constrained in their language and perhaps a little bit more limited in the way that they can talk about the Mekong as they go through these new exercises with China. Well, and China's worked to institutionalize its own alternative, right? The, the Lansang Mekong Cooperation I forget the full acronym. Mechanism. Mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. Are these redundant? Are they complementary? They're complementary. The LMC, as it's called, is not a apples-to-apples -apples comparison to the MRC. LMC is like the U.S.'s MUSP, right? It's a foreign policy framework with lots of different themes and pillars and, and action areas within the Mekong. MUSP being the Mekong-U.S. Partnership. Mekong U.S. Partnership. Yep, thanks. The apples apples comparison is the Water Resources Center for the LMC in Beijing. And the type of engagement that they're doing with the MRC is complementary. They're producing joint studies. They're talking about ways to jointly run the river. Now, I think in our efforts are part of this result. That institution in Beijing has promised to share dam data by the end of the year with the downstream. No details disclosed, but that pledge has now been made by the end of the year. We've got a, a date on it. So the two counterparts are moving forward hand in hand. It remains to be seen whether they'll agree on how the river is to be used because the two sides have discursive and rhetorical differences in terms of what the uses of dams are and what's important for the Mekong, even insofar as how China sees the downstream and what's important in the downstream. There are some major differences there. On the U.S. side, the Mekong-U.S. partnership is the vehicle through which this serious policy dialogue that you ran is funded and organized. Is it now the primary means of U.S. engagement with the region on the river? Has it superseded the role of things like the Lower Mekong Initiative from the Obama administration? So the MUSP replaced the Lower Mekong Initiative. And I think the sense was, you know, the initiative was over. You're 10 years on, time to rebrand, and then also recognize that China calls its portion of the Mekong the Lansong River, so it's not necessarily a 
Mekong country. <laughs> I think the State Department did a little bit of magic with words on this and, and came up with the Mekong-U.S. partnership because the Mekong is now defined as what we previously would call the Lower Mekong. And in the views of the State Department, that would be all the territory of the countries through which the Lower Mekong flows. So including all of Myanmar, which is a big issue and kind of hampering the MUSP to move forward given the what's happening in Myanmar. But that would be Myanmar, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, and, and Thailand. So the MUSP does not include China because the U.S. does not consider the Lansang to be part of the Mekong, despite the fact that it's the same river. There were no Chinese participants in your workshop. Was that because they didn't want to come, or is it because they can't take part in this architecture? It's complicated. You know, there are congressional funding restrictions on whom can come to workshops. We have invited certain Chinese nationals to come, depending on where they work and how they could participate. But to have a proper dialogue, you need to have all the countries represented in the room. I will say, though, that we know from experience that you get different answers from Southeast Asians depending on who is in the room, right? So there is a tend to self-censor among mainland Southeast Asians if certain Chinese stakeholders are in the room. This is just a kind of fact of life of doing this type of work in Southeast Asia. So we feel that this type of inclusive, bottom-up process that, again, convenes people from government, from communities, from NGOs, from academia together can provide a safe space for a conversation about the hard issues. And then we get them working hard on developing these policy recommendations. Let's close with a bit of a vibe check. You know, in 2019, you wrote a book called The Last Days of the Mighty Mekong. It's been four years. How do you feel about the future of the Mekong? Well, I mean, it's still not getting any better. The book came out prior to the string of three really, really dry wet seasons, 2019, 2020, 2021. And things were already bad prior to that and getting worse. Yet at the same time, the river bounced back and showed its resilience last year. So if we talk about the Tonle Sap, that's a lake in Cambodia that expands five times its normal size every wet season and really is the driver for that 20% of the world's freshwater fish production. That happened. The five times expansion happened last year. It happened with dam impacts, right? And that means it can happen into the future. But as more dams are built, as more fish migration pathways get blocked by dams, as more sand mining occurs, driven by industrialization and real estate development, whether it's needed or not, the river's dying a death of a thousand cuts. What we have learned over the last four years are ways to protect and conserve the river system. There's no shortage of solutions, suggestions, policy recommendations out there for the U.S. government to dig into to help save the river system. But a lot of work needs to be done to prevent the river system from dying. All right. A call to arms. We're going to have to leave it there. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Greg. And thank you all for listening to another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Alina and I will be back in two weeks. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org. And we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you may have. Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. 
Marla Hiller is our producer, and our interns are Yume Lin and Angus Lam. Our host today was Greg Poling. My name is Lauren Mai. And I'm Angelica Artega. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. 